On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group discusses Russia's 2112 and a farewell to kings. Hi and welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by my very good friends Tom Corcoran, Ken Gregory, J.D. Virgilio, and Paul Zotter as we continue through the first part of the Rush catalog, covering the albums 2112 and A Farewell to Kings. So as soon as Ken gets back, we can uh, we can get back into into Rush. And in fact, maybe I can even kick it off before Ken gets back because Jay, I've got a question for you, my friend. Oh dear. As our resident drummer, I'm I'm hoping you can you know provide some some perspective here because clearly I'm not qualified to speak. But there was something that came up in the last episode of Rush. I think it was somewhat near the end if I recall correctly, where there was a there was a description from I think it was Alex on when Neil auditioned for and joined the band. And 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 Paul, I think you read it, so help me out if I if I don't get this right. But it was there was a description of Neil's playing as being almost out of control and yeah. Keith Moon esque. Um, and and clearly very different from other people they had heard. Now, you know, having grown up, you know, idolizing Neil from afar to the extent that I understand it, and even now listening to this, Neil is is very clearly busy, if that's the right phrase. But I never had the impression, nor do I now, that he was ever close to being out of control. Um, whereas Keith Moon, I have the impression that Keith Moon was pretty much always out of control. Am I wrong on this? Do you have any perspective? Uh, no, I think you're you're basically right. That if you look at uh, Ginger Baker or uh, Keith Moon or Mitch Mitchell, probably big influences to Neil. I don't know. I haven't read, but um, they're they're like. 16th note maniacs you know they're, they're constantly going they're all over the place and yeah they seem out of control and that seemed to be really popular at the time and they're all you know well-respected drummers even though i don't like any of them uh, <laughs> and that's what i think Neil's playing reflects up until 2112 it was it's like that it's not as bad but it's definitely like that and he the tempos i think are you know kind of fast and, and, uh, and the pills are all over the place and he's kind of spastic and it's really not very good but he really does uh turn it around i think starting at 2112 and you start to hear the neil pert that you hear for several albums after that and it's it's very good it's very much more mature so and, and it, it's it's like i said it's it's busy but it's I, I perceive it as being focused and very much in control as opposed to just fast and out of control that was uh, that was my deal. So I, that that's that's sort of been sticking in my head all week um, since we had that. So I, I was glad you were able to to, uh, to call in 
And and actually, at this point, why don't we take a, a few quick minutes and and open up the floor to to Tom and Jay, since you guys weren't um, available for the conversation last week. Um, you know, do you have any strong feelings either way about um, you know the, the the first three Rush albums? Jay, you want to go first? <laughs> Well, on uh, Caress of Steel, um, Bastille Day, I think, is one of the best Rush riffs ever. Um, and, I, you know, it's a pretty simple song, pretty straightforward, but uh, I love it. Uh, and I think I'm Going Bald is actually kind of cool, even though it's kind of a basic bluesy rock kind of song. Thank you, Jay. <laughs> but I, I can't stand the rest of it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the necromancer. Yeah, I, so I mentioned that that you are were instrumental in my in my discovering of Rush and and hooking me up with dub tapes of things and and I and I I said we spent a night at your house and we were you were we were listening to like Exit Stage Left as you were making me a tape of it and um, I think maybe. Uh, moving pictures too that same night and then you just said you took you had your cassette of caress of steel and you were like here i don't really like this one very much you can just have this <laughs> and you gave it to me just like that fantastic i'm sure you enjoyed it more than i i did i can't stay in the chorus in lakeside park though i have to admit when they switch to the chorus it's like what what is it about the chorus that i hate it's like it's so different than the rest of the song you hate it god i love lakeside park just the chorus. It's just the chorus I hate. It, it, look, does it switch to a minor key or something? I mean, I don't know what I'm talking about, but. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Mucho? Well, I mean, I, I, there's definitely songs on there that I like. And, I mean, I have so much respect for the band, it, it's hard to really, you know, criticize them because i mean they're they are who they are and uh, i mean they it's uh it, it, it's it's hard to, to criticize but um i i just really never um identified with the uh first few albums um i always appreciated some of the riffs and you know a couple songs here and there sort of um i i, I read all right so he, here it is i'll be honest um, on the on the morning, uh, a, a couple days before the last podcast, I was listening to the first three albums, and to be completely honest, I couldn't get through the albums without falling asleep. It was like <laughs> it was like the rockabye uh, lullaby for me, but I was actually listening to the real albums. So I mean, it just it was just a I, I, and I didn't really you know so I don't. Um, Listen, you know, I think Rush wouldn't be who they are, you know, if they didn't just start somewhere. But I, I think the first few albums just sound like bad Led Zeppelin albums. And, uh, you know, I, I think that, um, but I, I'm glad that they are what they are. Yeah, I'm glad they did what they did because they wouldn't be what they are today. So, I mean, I, I respect them. Um, but uh, 2112 is really the first album that i was like wow this is great i mean i i, I love 2112 but um i it was like the first 
real Rush album for me. And, you know, occasionally I try to go back to some of the earlier stuff. Uh, I keep thinking that I'm going to, like, one day I'm going to listen to, you know, Crest of Steel, and I'm just going to, um, like, this light's going to go off and be like, oh, my gosh, um, I was missing this album my, my, my whole life. But, uh, unfortunately, I listened to it, you know, a couple weeks ago, and um, the light didn't go off. But, um, you know, I, uh, you know, it's... It's it's a process for me, and you know, I and I I, I think that um, it's good to see where they came from, and it's just I, I I'm not able to really identify with the first few albums. Well, and I think um, you know, based on based on some of the conversations that we've been having both internally and externally since then, I think one of the things that is is sort of becoming clear to me is your feelings about certain albums from certain bands depends on at which point you got onto the track. And so I, I was a little disappointed that Mike wasn't able to join us tonight because apparently, you know, much like, um, you know, our new friend, uh, Dave and, and getting in, you know, to Merlion on the ground floor, so to speak, and, and how he feels about most of the yes catalog coming in at drama, you know, I, I, I made the comment last week, and, and obviously, you know, we didn't get to 2112, but I made the comment that I, while I appreciate that, you know, the importance of it and that real Rush fans absolutely go ape shit over 2112, and, and, and through this exercise, I can appreciate sort of the album itself, I, I still can't say that I get it in, in the way that, you know, maybe other people do. So, you know, but, but apparently, you know, Mike, that was, I guess that was his gateway. Is that correct, Paul? And, and he absolutely loves 2112. I mean, that's... I don't know. Well, he's definitely a fan of the early albums. Um, and when I say a fan, like I described it before, like if you say to Mike, play a Rush riff, um, I would I would say that you play any any uh, you ask someone in our of our contemporaries and they'll play something like Red Barchetta or they'll um, play something off of Signals or maybe they'll play you know at the, the furthest they might go back is closer to the harder Xanadu, but Mike plays track one from album one you know as soon as you ask him for a riff so he's just sort of um, back in that in that vein and i and you know we talked about it last week and and i think this has only i just realized this 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 go around that for all the years that i've loved yes and the years that i've loved marillion i have gone through and listened to their whole catalog from front to back i've never ever done that with rush ever this is the first time i said okay i'm gonna listen to each album in the order and I didn't even know what the order was. I thought I thought Fly By Night was the fourth album. I was completely combobulated. Yeah. So, and listening to it in in the order is so much different than hearing Exit Stage Left and Moving Pictures and Permanent Waves, and then Grace Under Pressure, and then All Over Again, and then saying, hmm, I wonder what Old Rush was like, and listening to Xanadu, right? And, you know, or hearing, like, Trees and Xanadu on Exit Stage Left, and thinking, oh, that's, like, the older, yeah, or the older Rush. And then you go back, and you 
you think about it in reverse and you're like, wow, like they've come a long way. Or you just kind of take for granted that Xanadu is like, the, the, there are these old wise masters doing this amazing stuff. Where, where this go around, I had the chance to actually hear them develop all of those chops and grow as songwriters and as, as musicians and as, as the band. And it's, it was, it's very cool. And I've come out of the last couple of weeks loving Fly By Night in ways that I never have before. And I'm still listening to that even as we're, we're going, going through this. And, and, I, and I'll admit, um, side two of 2112. This is probably the first time I ever spent any time on side two of 2112. And uh, it's, it's terrific. Yeah, so let let's let's um, do our official bit, and then we can just throw up on the floor and explore. Um, certainly, twenty one twelve, and and if we're lucky, we'll get to a farewell of kings. So, just to recap, twenty one twelve was released in nineteen seventy six. Was produced by Rush and Terry Brown, and released on the label Anthem, featuring Getty Lee, Alex Lightson, and Neil Peart. Twenty one twelve is the fourth studio album by the Canadian rock band Rush released on April 1st, 1976 by Anthem Records. After they finished touring their previous album, Caress of Steel, in early 1976, the band were in financial hardship due to the album's disappointing sales, unfavorable critical reception, and a decline in numbers at their shows. Their international label, Mercury Records, considered dropping them, but granted Rush one more album following negotiations with their manager, Ray Daniels. 2112 was recorded in February 1976 in Toronto with their longtime producer Terry Brown. Its centerpiece is a 20-minute title track, a futuristic science fiction song with five individual tracks on side two, it says, although I believe it's side one, at least as it's done on mine. 2112 was released to favorable reviews from most from music critics. And quickly outsold the band's previous albums. It peaked at number five on the Canadian album charts and number 61 on the U.S. Billboard Top LPs and Tape. Rush supported the album with a tour of North America and for the first time across Europe from February 1976 to June 1977. 2112 remains the band's second highest selling album with over 3 million copies sold in the U.S. It is listed in the 1001 albums you must hear before you die and ranked second on Rolling Stone's Reader's Poll, your favorite prog rock albums of all time. 2112 has been reissued several times. A 40th anniversary edition was released in 2016, with previously unreleased material, including the album performed by artists, including Dave Grohl, Taylor Hawkins, Stephen Wilson, and Alice in Chains. So, Joe, uh, one of the things that gives me great hope for the future of this very podcast did you say hope? hope? I did uh, say hope. <laughs> but one of those things is the knowledge that there is in existence a book that lists 1,001 albums you must hear before you die. <laughs> we I mean, we're going to have to talk about that. <laughs> there's just, there's, I don't think there are that many albums that you must hear before you die. And yeah. Even if you've compiled that list, I definitely want to know what album is 1002. Like, who just missed the cutoff? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. 
Well, I'm also I'm also intrigued in this Rolling Stone readers poll. Your favorite prog rock albums of all time. I'm sure that would you know. And there's there's a uh, there's a footnote in there, so that's obviously on the wiki page, so we can check that out. Um, that's probably guaranteed to cause me heartburn. Probably Rolling Stones readers don't know any more than like three progressive rock albums. So well, exactly why uh. you know it'd be very interesting to see. Uh, and then quickly, I'll I'll just cover a farewell to kings which was released in 1977 also produced by russian terry brown released on anthem slash mercury featuring getty alex and neil a farewell to kings is the fifth studio album by canadian rock band rush released on september 1st 1977 by anthem records in canada and by mercury records in the united states it was recorded at rockfield studios in wales and was mixed at advision studios in london where Yes recorded, by the way. A Farewell to Kings would eventually become Rush's first U.S. gold-selling album, receiving the certification within two months of its release and was eventually certified platinum. Mm. Yeah. Now, I made the comment last time, and, you know, I when I when I first was putting these... Uh, these note sheets together i was stunned to read that 2112 at least at the time this was put together was still rush's second best-selling album really because again and, and this is just this is my perspective and as we discussed the last time i was very 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 late to the rush party and while i always knew of the existence of 2112 I couldn't tell you when the first time I listened to it was, and I can tell you that I owned it for many, many years, and I probably listened to it like two or three times. There was nothing about 2112 that I ever found compelling in any way, shape, or form. About the only thing I really knew on it really was, was a passage to Bangkok, and that was from the uh, the live recordings. It, it, it wasn't even the, the studio recording. So that's why I was surprised. But again, I, I've always known and appreciated that people that I consider to be like, you know, rabid Rush fans in the way that, you know, I'm a Yes fan or a Marillion fan, you know, actually go gaga over 2112. I don't necessarily get that, but I accept that it's a reality. Huh. Uh, nothing like, compelling? What's that? Nothing? Nothing compelling. Well, wow. that's not that's not I, I, much like you, Paul. You know, as I've been listening to this, I have been just enjoying the, the crap out of out of the second half of this album. Um, Passage to Bangkok, The Twilight Zone, less actually lessons, not so much, but tears and something for nothing. Oh. Yeah, that's 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 oh. some good stuff right there. Oh, fuck. Oh, boy. Yeah. Uh -oh. Joe, can I jump in here? Anytime, man. Um, uh, wonderful setup. I'm feeling motivated by this particular episode. And I just wanted to throw in history and see if it works for the Palaver. I know that we've we've tried to review other albums. Paul, you, you were great at um, bringing up the topic of albums released in the same time period usually within the same genre. And, and just uh, 
Uh, it's really interesting that Getty and Alex were born in the same year, and I think Neil is a year apart. It, it, it's basically uh, uh, 52, somewhere around there, 1952. Um, it's a really interesting time for some very successful people. Um, I'm, I'm looking, 52 was Neil, I, I looked at uh, uh, Sir Richard Charles Nicholas Branson was born in 1950. Um, let me see, William Jefferson Clinton was born in 46. Uh, George W. Bush was born in 46. It seemed to be the generation that had a lot of restarts. You, you seemed like you could fail during that time period and re recover quite nicely. Um, fuel prices dropped consistently for, for, for their uh, adolescence and for the young adult years. And I, I, I heard that that had to do with expanding economies. So it, it, it was the boom and bust. It was the post-World War. M most of these these uh, folks grew up when it was nothing but peace because no one could stand the aftermath of World War II. And they generally escaped uh, the Vietnam area. So uh, 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 people that became uh, famous had a lot of uh, time to... to uh, craft themselves and to try it over and over again. And I would say Rush tried over and over again and got it, got it right. I don't know. If, I don't know if that that floats with you guys, but I would say it's a generation that did very well among the generations of mankind. So, Ken, are you saying then that you know twenty one twelve is is one of that those starting over points or? Well, I would say they matured at that level. I, I would say um, even the wikis are saying that Caress of Steel was somewhat of a failure, but they were fortunate enough to hit the reset button and they got a second chance. Whereas in today's economy, maybe that band would not get a second chance. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, you know, when, when you talk about the... the second chance story as it's related here and, and you know I'm not in any position to speak to the veracity of this 2112 is their answer to that you know <laughs> well that that's pretty fucking ballsy <laughs> and that's and that's sort of the legend of of 2112, right? They had Caress of Steel, which by all means was a flop. The tour was terrible. The label was ready to dump them. And the label basically said, you need to go write us an album with some hits and make it more commercially successful. And, and they were like, okay, we can either do what we want to do and do it the best we can, or go write some hits and try to please the record company. And they decided to go out with a bang. And, 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 it couldn't have ended any more poetic. They went, did what they wanted to do. They did it as best as they could. They went out with a bang and they made everybody happy because they sold a bunch of records and it was very successful. I, I just, I don't want to be the guy who bags on everything and is, you know, Mr. Debbie Downer. That's okay. Tom's that guy. You don't have to be that guy. <laughs> <laughs> but, well, you know, but, you took my name, Mucho. You might as well be that guy, too. <laughs> but <laughs> but for, 
for me, listening to this, the song 2112, I don't think it's very good. Oh, boy. Here we go. <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, and I tried, I, I tried really hard. Like, so today when I was listening to it, I was like, all right, imagine I was a 14-year-old kid in 1976. <laughs> and you know, I got my mom to drive me to the mall or wherever, and I, I came home with my with my twenty one twelve. After you know, my mom gave me shit about the naked guy on the back cover. <laughs> you want to buy that? Yes, yes, I do. I don't know why there's a naked man. Don't worry about it. And, and so I go, I go home, and I I put on my LP, and the overture twenty one twelve starts. I probably would have been like, fucking a right, yeah. And then Getty starts screaming his fucking head off at me. I'm like, Jesus! What the hell's wrong with oh. you? Wow. And and quite frankly, you know, I I find twenty one twelve and and Paul, I didn't do my homework in terms of reading the story. Um, I, you know, I, I view it as as I described in the last episode. It's another one of these sketches and. It's not, I, if, if you put him in front of me, you know, I would much rather listen to Fountain of Lumneth than this. This, to me, is like the Rush's Sound Chaser. And, oh, and, gosh. <laughs> what? <laughs> well, it certainly isn't Gates of Delirium. Oh my gosh, Joe! Why are you? Here. Why are you embarrassing yourself? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm. I'm sure. I'm sure there is going to be a whole lot of Rush fans who are going to be burning me in effigy, and that's okay because I, you know, I, I, like I said, I, I appreciate that this is like high in the pantheon, and I think the rest of this album is really, really solid. I just don't get. Twenty-one twelve itself. I just don't. Wow. That's weren't they critical of twenty-one twelve? The the song though, the, the the side one. Didn't they say it was you know self-indulgent and kind of immature? And, or I, they, I don't know. I thought I read that Getty Lee said that. I think they were in a phase um, when they made permanent waves. They sort of, uh, you know, being that they were just right off of the. Um, the back end of the the real progressive era um, era of Rush, they were sort of um, critical of that phase in general. Um, I've heard them say some things about um, you know wanting to move on and um, you know wanting to be more focused on songwriting. Um, uh, so I guess being critical of that real progressive era of of Rush. You have to look at you know twenty one twelve because that's pretty much as progressive yeah. as you get. So and, um, I can see that they would be pretty critical of that if they were in that stage. But I think you know, um, like just like their fans, like they they come around. So I mean, like they, you know, they uh, I'm sure have I've I've heard them say you know good good things about the album too because they they probably are opinionated with their own music as their fans are. So they, they, they might have their critical periods and then kind of come around 
and then uh, appreciate their own their own stuff. But I, I didn't hear it about uh, twenty one twelve in particular. Yeah, I did hear it about Lakeside Park, Jay. If that makes you feel better, um, really? <laughs> I, I want to say Getty had mentioned something about not liking. Yeah, they were they were bringing back Lakeside Park. He he didn't want to he didn't want to bring it back. I, I I don't remember exactly what it was, but you know it's it's interesting because I want to say and and we'll get to this in future episodes when we talk about things like Power Windows and Hold Your Fire, and we talk about like to your point, Tom the the those two albums have probably some of the best constructed songs in the entire Rush catalog. I mean, the arrangements of the songs on Power Windows are f- phenomenal. They're, they're nothing short than phenomenal. And if you, th- you know, think about those guys constructing songs like that and then getting ready to go out on, on tour and they're like, oh, we know the fans want to hear Overture 2112. You know, we've only been playing that for you know 20 years now or however long it's been. And, and, and whatnot, I, it's almost the exact opposite of what we're talking about. Like we start with them in the middle of the catalog and then we're listening backwards thinking, what the hell is that? And they've got, they've lived through it all and they've reached sort of this pinnacle of whatever. And then they're like, really, we got to go back and play, you know, Temple of Syrinx. Not to mention that Getty was like, do I really have to sing that uh, there? (laughs) So well, um, can we can we talk about the story, Joe? You brought it up, um, but I, I think it fits into uh, maybe a preview of, of Tom Sawyer or whatnot. But you know, Rush is appealing a preview of subdivisions, a preview of whatever. But Rush is appealing to the thirteen-year-old who wants to escape, finds music as an escape. Um, the third movement, Discovery, starts off with a, a guitar that's tuning up. Lifeson is just tuning a guitar. And that symbolizes the protagonist discovering a forbidden instrument and tuning it up. So there's something powerful there. You, you almost have to know the story to appreciate 2112. Otherwise, it's a bunch of weird, crappy movements strung together. Um, but I, I, once, what you know, once I process that, and, and and I take it as more of a, a work of theater than a work of music, it's actually pretty cool the way they pull that off. Discovery, and there is a vocal dialogue that Getty is doing when he sings normally. He's the protagonist, and when he's screaming his balls off. He is the authority figure, is essentially the priest of the Temple of Syrinx. Yeah. And that moment for me, Ken, is the highlight of the 2112 epic. The, um, and I, and I, you know, this is interesting, Joe. I'm curious if you had a sense of the story when you first listened to it. Um, I, I did have the benefit of long before I even got into Rush, uh, my, my cousin Michael when we were vacationing as a, as a youth in Ocean City, Maryland, we were sitting on the beach talking about music, and he was just beside himself that I had never heard 2112. And he told me the whole story of 2112 about how it was like the planets got rid of all expression and individualism, and this guy finds a guitar just as Ken has described. So when I 
first heard it, I, I had the idea of what the story was. And Ken, I, I think the way the discovery works out is brilliant. And I know we were just texting about this today that, you know, Getty's shrill voice that has been somewhat annoying through the first three albums, I think was produced a lot better. But when he kicks into the, yes, we know, I mean, it is so perfect. It is, and it is just like this guy has discovered the coolest thing, and he he is finding this fire within him, and and the priest is basically just brushing it aside like it's no big deal in this contentious, contemptuous, just shouting tone. It is, it's to me, it is the, it is. You're right, Ken. It's the perfect. If you're a young guy or even an old guy. And you you think you're going up against the system? It is it is the perfect dialogue delivered, and I think the screeching vocals make it take it home. I think they push it over the top. It's awesome. Do you know how sad it is for me to hear or just be reminded of the fact that thirteen year old kids would be listening to twenty one twelve. And then what they're listening to now. I mean, I hate to sound like the, you know, the old curmudgeon, but how pathetic is it? Or to be the half, the, the glass half full, how cool is it that, you know, in the, in the 70s, 13-year-old kids are listening to 2112. Um, that's, that's awesome. Uh, it's also very sad when, um, you know, you think about, what people are listening to right now, but um, just the thought of thirteen-year-old kids listening to twenty-one twelve—I can't even picture it. Like I, I—it's like a foreign language to me. Like a thirteen-year-old kid listening to twenty-one twelve. Yeah, um, right. You know, Tom. I wonder though, because think about when we were that age. We were in junior high and high school. Um, I don't think all the kids were listening to Rush. I think we were in a small group of people. Yeah, but, but the yeah. thing is, 2112 was before our real time, though. I mean, when 2112 was out, I was like what, five or six years old. So, I mean, yeah, but, that was yeah, yeah. It's it's a little different, but um, no, I I know what you're saying, um, but it's just 2112 was the 70s, and um, you know, it's it's just it's impressive to me that there were people that. We're just freaking out over an album like 2112. And uh, it sort of adds to what we were talking about. Um, just being juxtaposed to, you know, Crest of Steel, which they wanted to be more commercial and then coming out with 2112. Um, and then people actually liking it. But yeah, sorry. That's true. But um, what I, um, you were talking about the, um, the chorus of that and i wanted to just say you know in progressive rock you know we're always talking about okay well what is progressive rock and does this is this categorized as progressive rock or not and um that chorus to me is just pure heavy metal like that's like yeah. a progressive rock takes from a lot of different um genres that's that, that that's heavy metal i mean it's yeah. really getty it's, it's his voice like heavy metal is that high-pitched ballsy sound and uh, and just that 
that rage and the energy. And even though, you know, Rush is not the heavy metal band, um, you can see what that, that they're, you know, taking from a lot of different areas to, you know, create what they've, what they've done. Yeah, dude. And you know, the, the, that part when it, when he says, I'm going to take it to the priests and they start in with a riff, it's mm-hmm. so heavy. And yeah. I feel like that is, that is, it's not the first time, but for me, that will always be like the first realization of the Getty Lee bass tone that is just kick ass. Yeah, yeah the oh, Rickenbacker my. is killer in this album. Yes. I mean, they, they have it dialed in and it ne- he never looks back after this. And, you know, Joe, we mentioned that, you know, maybe in the previous albums that they had not been virtuosos. And, um, I don't. I may want to redact that statement because after listening to Fly by Night a bunch since our last discussion, like dude's got it going on on the on the bass. But I think this is the this is the tone here that just kind of takes us forward. One one thing I'd add about the story, um, this you know the the story of twenty one twelve is very cool, and I was familiar with the album long before I read the book anthem they call it a novella because i guess it's short it's a short book um and i read anthem and and anthem is a really fantastic story and it's it's quite inspiring much the same way that that we're talking through like what the story like this story speaks to youth this story speaks to expressing oneself against the the um you know they call it the collective or you know the the um the, the industry or whatever it is, whatever you're fighting against, the story is. At the same time, when I read this book, I was like, dude, Neil Peart is a total, like, copycat. Like, it is, like, the story, the story of Anthem is, like, parallel to 2112 without the science, you know, the science fiction of, you know, the space jockeys and, the and you know, the, the priests or whatever. It is... But it is it is so similar. It's it's shocking. Even the main character discovers um, discovers a device uh, that I want I want to say discovers a device that um, creates electricity. It's like a light bulb or something crazy like that. Um, so so really, it it when I first read it, I was like, dude, like I'm so disappointed. You know, it's it's so unoriginal. Twenty one twelve. The idea is so unoriginal. But he totally gave you know, credit to, to Anne Rand and, and, um, you know, over time I've gotten over it quite, quite nicely. And I, I highly recommend it's, it's, it is a short book. It's certainly nowhere near as daunting as something like the fountainhead. Um, it's a terrific, it's a terrific read. And, you know, I, I noticed that on, on the wikis there, they talk about some of the reaction about, Anne Rand and, and, you know, her philosophy being, you know, right-wing extremist and all of this business. And, and, um, I haven't really dove deep into the whole philosophy of objectivism, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but Anthem does, to me, does not, uh, does not leave one as a right-wing extremist. It leaves one as being somebody who wants to express themselves and be an individual. Um, and 
and maybe that individualism finds some housing in like the libertarian side of things. But I, I just want to throw that out there because if you're sitting there reading about this on the wikis and you're reading about Anthem and you're like, oh, I'd like to read that book. And then you read that people are comparing it to like the right wing extremists and Nazism. Like it ain't that at all. So you should check it out. I could add to that. I've read the Fountainhead and um, Atlas Shrugged and I didn't walk away thinking that they were right wing extremist type books. I thought they were more libertarian in in their bent. And you can even see a little bit. I haven't read Anthem, but I can see similar parallels in the lyrics of 2112. And it, it kind of bugs me because it's like it's like a bad copy. It's like he's trying to do the same idea, but only nowhere near as good. Of course, it's just song lyrics, not a, a whole bit of prose, but it's it's kind of like C.S. Lewis doing the Chronicles of Narnia. It's like a bad copy of Tolkien. You know, it's like it's just not no. It's nowhere near as good, and it, it it it'll always bug me that in that way that it's a bad copy. Like, why did you try that? <laughs> <laughs> I'd just like to note that, as as expected, uh, I read the short novella and and Jay read the two epic novels. That doesn't surprise me because you like that uh, that Disney version of uh, Marbles. The uh, <laughs> Mar the marbles are us. Oh gosh, that's a conversation for another day, Thomas. I couldn't right. buy the two disc version. I only had the North American available to me. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Well, well as 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 oh, boy. as the resident liberal yogi fruitcake here, if I were to read only one libertarian book, and believe me, it would kill me, if I were to read only one libertarian book, what should I read? I'd say The Fountainhead. Yeah? Okay. Alright. I, I would say, well, I mean, I didn't read any of them, so, I mean, I don't, I don't think you read Anthem and you think, oh, this is libertarian, but what do I know? Right. I mean, it sounds that these. I imagine that the genre started with kind of pure intentions, and a lot of it was taken to extremes. Uh, uh, so, uh, uh, or, or, or just misappropriated here and there. So, um, but 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 clearly, it did it did Neil Peart some good, and it did rush some good. Um, you know, wh wh while they may have been. Um, Libertarians at heart, um, they were also stoners. Does anyone want to have that conversation? Because Fascist to Bangkok is an amazing song. Um, passage, yeah. passage to Bangkok makes references to all the geographical places where marijuana can be grown with e efficacy. So, um, it... it, 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 it <laughs> uh, uh, being from Canada, I read an interview with Neil, uh, actually Alex, where he said that, you know, they were probably smoking Mexican weed up in Canada, but uh, on occasion, uh, they had a tie stick or something from another part of the world. So all of the references in Passage to Bangkok are about um, smoking 
smoking it up all over the globe with, huh. with, with choice buds. And I think the, I think the rhythms are kind of boogie woogie. You know, this is 1976, and, and and Paul, didn't you say in one of our Yes podcasts that 1978 was the peak of uh, marijuana consumption? I'm actually looking at the chart right now, Ken. Yes. <laughs> 1978 was the peak, uh, but they, we were on a pretty steep climb in 1976. So. Okay. Now, the, the band did um, agree not to uh, smoke prior to going on stage, and they grew up quite a bit during their career. And I read that um, more, more so these days, Alex and Getty are uh, sommeliers, they, they're wine connoisseurs, and they will uh, bring a couple bottles from their private cellars when they go on tour, such that they can entertain each other backstage uh, with, with, with a fine wine rather than an illegal substance. But, but uh, Alex himself was on the record advocating for legalization in Canada. So, huh. uh, so uh, I, I think that was interviews in the 2012-2015 era. Um, yeah, they probably haven't changed their stance too much on that. Uh, so, so yeah, may, maybe there's a libertarian influence in there, but uh, uh, Alex called himself a liberal, and, and uh, he, he came out very vocally for the legalization of uh, yeah. marijuana. Yeah, which is not really surprising at all, based on on um, what we've what we've learned about them. Um, incidentally. At the end of one of the videos, I want to say that it might be, I don't know if it's at the, at the Gilded, on the Gilded stage or if it's one of the other tour videos. There's actually a, the end part of the video, like the last half hour, is Alex and Getty sitting at a small table with a couple bottles of wine and they're being served dinner. And I guess some of their fans... Thought they would. They thought it would be really cool to, to, you know, have dinner with the two of them, and so they decided to to do that for the end of the video. So they and they just have a, a video of them eating a meal and just talking about about things. And um, I remember like a being podcast quite, we did. Yeah, sounds like it, it's. I remember it being somewhat entertaining. Um, I did not know that about Pasha's passage to Bangkok, and I'll have to uh, think about it. A little bit more. Um, they only stop to the best, man. That's what I'll tell you. <laughs> so, they have standards. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it, it cracks me up. And I don't mean to slightly change the subject, but can you imagine? Um, it, it, I, I was floored when I found out that, that Rush, you know, mm. would open up for Kiss, and I just I couldn't I just I couldn't even fathom this but i wonder if they did any of um if they had escalated beyond opening up for bands in this era uh where they opened up for kiss during this era and if they did like can you imagine like listening to you know overture and then having kiss go on and play? <laughs> it's just it's a it's sort of a strange um concept uh but um it's it just it's just odd i uh, you know what i'm i'm 
So you know what? So I'm just looking at the wikis because I just watched this. Um, there is a documentary out now that's I don't. It's definitely not sanctioned, but it's um, it's called The Rise of Kings, and it's pretty long. And it's one of those like, you know, you can tell it's not sanctioned because there's actually no real interviews with the band. It's just spliced together of many, many interviews that other people have given about the band for years and years. And they found like four guys that would talk about them, and they kind of talk about the whole thing. Sure. But I know they they talked about that like this touring was the first time they I think they went into Europe and they did extensive North American touring. I think up till now it was just um I think up till now it was when they were opening for Kiss and things like that. Um and I want to say they were on like more like festival tours and things like that. So I, I but it, again, like when I think of the bands that I that in my head that they they were touring, and I can't think of their names right now, I think Rush would have probably been the most unique set of characters crossing the stage. Certainly playing twenty one twelve. Absolutely. <laughs> the videos from this era are are a bit painful. Um, uh, maybe I'm jumping the gun into, um, uh, hemispheres, uh, but I, I think they even may have done some kind of video for something on 2112, but, uh, uh, it's interesting to see what they wore, what they looked like, the instruments that they played. Neil with long hair is scary. Have you guys seen Neil with long hair? Yeah, it is scary. The big stash. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy, seventy-six. And metal was a huge influence. Metal was definitely happening and hot, um, even before. So, so six years before this, actually, would have been Jesus Christ Superstar. Um, I don't know if, 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 if progressive fans can appreciate Deep Purple, but Ian Gillen was amazing in Jesus Christ Superstar doing the screeching thing. Oh, so yeah. so I, I would say, you know, anyone who could appreciate Jesus Christ Superstar, Ian Gillen, the screechy thing, might love Getty's Temple of Syrians. It might just all work out, and you could get, you know, a little bit of that showmanship from the theater world into that and a little bit of the metal fans and you know they had something unique going on there yeah so what what about the uh the rest of the album i mean you know and, and i'll just throw in my two cents and you guys can can go where you need to with this you know, I think we've already covered a passage to Bangkok a little bit. Um, you know, again, I think the later live versions of this are perhaps a little bit better. But, you know, it's, it's, it is what it is. It's, it's a brilliant song. For me, the Twilight Zone... Brilliant. They're brilliant, Jim? They're brilliant? Uh-oh. <laughs> I'm writing it down. <laughs> what? Whatever. I agree with Twilight you. Zone. The Twilight Zone and Tears, I think, are, you know, for me, they, they just really resonated with me. Lessons, That's right, much, baby. Much, lessons much less so. 
Um, I didn't really get lessons at all. But Something for Nothing, it, I, I find this song to be remarkable on a number of different levels. Um, it is... I, I, I find... I find the song to be a, a very, I don't know, a staunch anthem. It's it's really in your face with its message. And then you when you go back and sort of start listening to it and the way it opens before it moves into the heavy part, it's kind of like, you know, there, I think there's a lot going on in something for nothing that, you know, it... it it, I guess it really struck me because I was, you know, perhaps less impressed with how the album started. And it's almost like it, it puts, you know, it, it, it puts a good exclamation point, I think, on the overall message they were trying to sell. And for me, I think it does it better than, than the opening. But that's, that's my deal. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, the, the, the end is, um, it's really rough. I did not acclimate to something for nothing. So, so, so basically, uh, I would say the last three or four tracks just leave me hanging. Yeah, I, you know, I, the Twilight Zone, for me, this go around, I, maybe there was a time when just the mere mention of the phrase, the Twilight Zone, I just felt it was cheesy or whatever. I don't know. But I really dig that song. And, you know, he's got the high verse and then it goes into the chorus where he's singing the nanas and it's his lower Getty voice. There's something about that song yeah. this go around that just kind of blew me away. And um, I saw I saw that there's a Stephen Wilson did a version of it. And I was really excited to hear his interpretation of it. And I really didn't like it at all. And, and I like point. I know. Yeah. And I like Stephen Wilson a lot, but it might just be because right now I'm so high on the original. Um, I do like lessons because anytime Alex Lyson in the 1970s wants to take an acoustic guitar and then double it with his electric, I mean, it just sounds glorious. That's like the sound of me, of my, like, you know, I don't know. That's what, that's what my insides sound like. I think, um, I love it. And, um, those two songs, I like. I definitely like those two songs more so than than Tears or Something for Nothing. But right about Something for Nothing, Joe. The way it starts, and the, what makes what it makes me think of is they definitely had the production dialed in this this go around, and I think it might have something to do with the pot smoking that you alluded alluded to, Ken. <laughs> the things just, you know, Caress of Steel just sounds bad, and Twenty One Twelve does not. It sounds really good. And you know, for night, you know, for night, it's 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 metal, right? But it sounds really good. And when I listen to the beginning of something for nothing, I think, man, I wonder, you know, what it would have sounded like if they actually would have recorded Caress of Steel to try to make it sound good. You know, um, may, maybe we get something that that sounded more like this. And and um, you know, I like I said on the, our text exchange earlier. I, I just felt like even when Getty goes into the shrill, um, it was managed much better production-wise this go-around. And um, it just sounded overall really good. So, And I don't think I really paid much attention to side two until this exercise. So I was pretty pretty stoked. Pretty stoked. Well, it, it, it also has to do with dynamics. I mean, I know 
there's a production which you're talking about, but I mean, in the part where you know, in Temple where he screams, there's 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 highs and lows when he when he's doing a scream that that's the high. I think you know, Crest of Steel is just like one wall of sound, and so you don't really get the um, the payoff, so, so to speak. There's no payoffs because it's all you know, even even keel like the same level but um 2112 has the dynamics and it's um it's it's a real ride you know there has to yeah. be, have highs or you have to have lows i mean even with like, I, I i agree with you they're they're much better at it and uh it's it's much more dynamic in 2112 because in crest of steel you have one lonely acoustic guitar playing with with getty going remembering it's like really like, and it's like, dude, did any, did anyone actually hear that take? Did anyone listen to that? Or did they record it and press it? Well, and and I think you know this speaks to what you were talking about, Paul. And, you know, and and part of the 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 power, if that's the right word, of what we do here is you know by starting at the beginning and and going through, you can sort of we have the ability with hindsight to see the progression, no pun intended, and, and to, to sort of create these these connective arcs, if you will. And and what we've seen here through um, you know, Fly by Night, Caress of Steel into 2112 is is, you know, a, a group of songwriters who are learning their craft. They're learning how to 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 build these songs. They're learning, you know, oh well what you know, why didn't Caress of Steel work? Oh, well maybe we need, you know, if we did this. And, you know, for, like I said, for, for me, I still, 2112, I think, you know, the, the second half of it is, is an advanced sketchbook, but I still, I personally still view it very much as a, as a sketchbook. And for me, you know, Real Rush begins on the next album with Farewell to Kings. But, hey, you know, when, when, but, but, oh, but what, yeah, go uh, ahead, uh, as a sketchbook. You know, how close are they to getting the moving pictures drum sound at this point? In twenty one twelve, pretty close, I thought. Um, I, at, at least the the style of uh, his playing is there, um, and maybe not the toms, but uh, the rest of the kit is is sounding a lot like uh, moving pictures. They, they kind of avoided the the the, the classic. 80s. I mean, they still had some gated reverb, but they avoided the the character of it. You know, it wasn't a joke. They, I think they they oh. Peter was enough of a musician to keep the acoustic nature of the kit while adding some gated reverb, right? Like, like isn't that? Or was he just as bad as everybody else? No, no, no way. He was just as bad. Uh, but he went electronic at some point and. You know, and that yeah. was off the deep end. I have, I have a feeling we'll we'll revisit that when we get to Grace Under Pressure. I think there may be some gated reverb violations happening on uh, some of those uh, some of those tracks. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I've said before, like like the mid '60s to the mid '70s. That's my favorite period of recorded music because it's just kind of honest and, and, and it, it just yeah. kind of reflects tube microphones and the instruments as they were 
And once we start, you know, getting into the late 70s and the early 80s, it, it, it just becomes a competition to make everything as fake as possible. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I would say that, like, I agree with you, Ken, on, and Jay, that I think Terry Brown really had the drums dialed in from here all the way through maybe signals is the first time like the drums are like, eh, you know, but I feel like he's really got them dialed in. And I thought that that way with um, fly by night, which is really what makes crest of steel such a wacky album. Cause even fly by night, I think the drums sound really good and just nothing sounds good with on crest. It's amazing how much I like crest of steel. Mm. But it really, oh, what, about you? What, what sound overall in this period is best what catches your ear? Well, I mean, the, the sound, uh, it, it's more, for me, it's always going to be the song, uh, more of a, than, than the sound. Um, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think that um, it's it, things are more honest, especially in the 70s. I mean, that, that's my favorite sound. Um, and... You know, the, where they actually took time to get the sound before they recorded it, instead of just going in and saying, "Okay, we'll we'll fix the the sound in the mix." Um, you know, they actually got the sound on 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 tape, um, and that makes a world of difference, in my opinion. So, I, I mean, I would, but I mean. At the end of the day, I'm not really going to um, nitpick about a sound if it's a great song. I mean, that's sort of secondary to me. Um, the sound will will sort of, I'm, I'm sorry, the song will, will lead the way. Yeah, yeah. But, um, well, to follow up with what you said, Ken, uh, and we probably said this a million times but uh before there was before there was pro tools there were pros <laughs> <laughs> no argument no argument there oh man all right did, did, did we slay this album or what i i hope so <laughs> <laughs> so can we please 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 talk about a farewell to kings pretty please Really, it's horrible. Yeah. But, okay. No, no, no. I, 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 I love a couple tracks. Oof. Go to it. All right. So, and again, I'm not stereotypical Rush fan in any way, shape, or form. I fully accept that. Um, so, for me, as I'm going through this when I put in a farewell to Kings and this is like, uh, now we've arrived and I feel better about virtually everything. I think, you know, a lot of this is, um, is really much more controlled. Um, when I, when I finally discovered you know, yes, and I had that sort of awakening round about 2000 or so. Um, roundabout. I was, I, roundabout. 
I was sort of focused in on A Farewell to Kings and Hemispheres. And I think Xanadu really was what pulled me in first to this album. And then this one led ultimately to uh, to Hemispheres. But, you know, and even this time, the first time I put this disc in, I hadn't listened to it in quite some time. You know, A Farewell to Kings, it, it, to me, it seems like a, you know, sort of a, this is, is you know, the, the first completed work. This is this is the, the rush that I always knew um, or thought I knew growing up, you know, coming in later on and everything else. And and here it is in A Farewell to Kings. I think it's it's beautiful. I meant to look at the lyrics because there are some 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 words in here that I, I think I hear um, that remind me of some other stuff. That, that's very, very cool. Um, Xanadu, you know, is one of those songs that I, I kind of knew about. But I didn't fully appreciate it until, you know, this sort of uh, awakening period that I had. And and Xanadu as a song is just freaking phenomenal. Oh, my God. There's so much about it that is just, oh. I mean, in, in the first Rush episode, I talked about Rush being able to sort of convey this sense of of movement and discovery and things like that. Um, and, and Xanadu, I think is, is a perfect manifestation of that. Everyone knows closer to the heart. Um, you know, I think it's, 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 it's well known. It's sort of timeless. It's, it's, you know, it, it has a certain beauty about it. I don't know if it's as profound as I probably would have thought it was back when I was a teenager, but you know that's okay. Madrigal. It, what is it about a song called Madrigal that just turns out to be so fucking beautiful? What, how how does that work? Because this yeah. is not the first time we've seen this. And then um, you know, just to give here's here's perhaps the surprising part because and, and not to, to skip ahead. Hemispheres, the song, is the absolute highlight to me of early Yes. It is there, close to the edge, there, awaken. Cygnus X1, book one, voyage? Not so great. You know, I mean, it, it sounds good. You know, here, I think, and here again, when you talk about all the things you guys have been discussing, where you talk about, um, you know, production and, and, and songwriting and everything else, I think... You know, everything here is, is again, we've got a, a full finished work, but there's just something about Cygnus X1 Book 1, which doesn't, I, I just don't connect with. But I like the rest of the album so much, I don't even care. Yeah, that, that is a great observation, Joe. I could not agree with you more about Cygnus X1. I thought this time around, I might find myself liking it in a new way that because... I've never really liked it before. And I, I all, sometimes I think, you know, there were a couple of artists that my entry into them were, was somewhat distorted because I spent many, many nights in Jay's basement listening to Dan and Jay playing through some of the songs. Like I think of Rage for Order. Um, Jay, you and Dan used to play through a couple of 
great to order from. What's the what's the first the new regal? You guys used to play the beginning of that song, and I used to be like, "What a crock of shit that is! That is just <laughs> awful." And then, and then when I and then when I heard it, you know, playing cards at Ken's house, and I was like, "Guys, this music is freaking awesome! Who is it?" And he's like, "It's great for order." And I was like, "What?" Um, and this was a song that you and Dan always played. The beginning of and um, it just used to annoy the hell out of me. And I don't think I I uh, I don't know why it did, but uh, I never could get past that. And like it just kind of went through me this go around. Like it's just not. I agree with you. Like I they could have. I I do really like the first song, um, uh, the title track of the album. Uh, but it was it never it, it never really hit me early on. Like I started at Xanadu and took it all the way through to the end of Madrigal, and then that was that was kind of it for me. Um, I definitely appreciate Farewell to Kings now as the song, um, but Cygnus X One Book One The Voyage. I'm with you, Joe. Not so. I'll take Hemispheres. Thank you very much. That's interesting. I like the I like Cygnus X One a little bit. I mean, I I like the music to it. But it, it doesn't, it just sounds like disconnected parts that are kind of cool to me. It doesn't sound like one cohesive song in any in any way. But So I guess I get off on the music, but that's about it. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think that's that's perfectly valid. And to the extent that, you know, I enjoy that song, it, it's it's on that level. But it's not something that that really resonates with me. And I'm like, Oh man, this is, you know, this is the coolest thing ever. You know, when you talk about, yeah, I, I may as well just keep going since I've said so many buttheadish things tonight. Anyway, no, not at all. The, the Cygnus, the Cygnus X1 book one, you know, it, if, if I'm drawing, yes, parallels, it's, you know, it's, it's, maybe track three of tales from topographic oceans you know it's like okay huh. there's there's a couple things about it but yeah you know why yeah you know and and, and here again though i think when when you see where they end up going you know it it, it is it is a, a step in a direction um, you know, and they're still they're still trying to figure out this this long form song with, you know, how to fit the different parts together and how to make, you know, sort of a, a unifying story interesting. And and, and I mean, they're I, I got to give them credit. They're they're trying it. And and I wonder if if Hemispheres wasn't so brilliant, if I would feel differently about this. But I, I just. I don't think it quite measures up to the rest of this album. Mm, mm, mm. I mean, what could measure up to Xanadu and Closer to the Heart? Those, those two tracks are perfect. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, Xanadu really is, it's, it's, a, it's a pinnacle song. It, it, there's so much about that song that I just absolutely love. I made the mistake of watching the video, and they have double-necked instruments. 
so th th there is a certain level of excess in in, 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 in in just in that tune. I guess it wouldn't Xanadu wouldn't be possible without the double necked instruments. At the end, Getty is playing guitar rather than bass, um, and it makes them look a little goofy. And that's probably the peak of their their, their goofy, sparkly '70s clothing. There's this period, and you know, uh, I think. Getty's wearing like a long white jackety looking thing that maybe Chris Squire could pull off a little better. I don't know. Um, so, so the, you, Rick I, Wakeman still wears a cape, Ken. Just, <laughs> just <put that> out. <laughs> yeah, Wakeman still wears a cape. You know, Tibetan. <laughs> that, that's fine. But um, so uh, uh, we, we 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 probably all peaked out on exit stage left in the version of Xanadu and Exit Stage Left is magic, pure magic. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the, the original is is almost magic. It is just so good that I, I will let the uh, the crazy video and the crazy clothing and the excess of the double-necked instrument slide just, yeah. to have my, my, just to have my Xanadu. Um, listening to it now as an adult as opposed to as a kid, it, it's still got those wacky parts to it, you know. It's it's not a, a fluid song, but uh, doesn't have to be. Um, you know, I, I'll I'll take I'll take the weirdness because it's just so damn good. I agree. It's it's a, it's a great song. It's it's really it's really magic. That's all I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Jay? How do you feel about a farewell to kings? Uh, well, I love Xanadu. Of course, I heard it first on Exit Stage Left too. But, uh, but the the album version's almost as good. Um, yeah, and Closer to the Heart is one of those classics. I'm so tired of hearing it, but it is a great song. Um, I didn't like Magical. I don't like Farewell to Kings. I don't. I mean, Sings X One is like I said a a collection of cool rhythmic things and cool riffs. That you know, I don't know what they were trying to do there, but uh, it, it's fun to listen to, I guess. Yeah. So, so so. <laughs> I, find so. It, I find it interesting that you know you 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 don't like Farewell to Kings, and yet there are parts of Cygnus that you know you get into. But that's you know that that is the beauty of all of this because you know different parts speak to to different people, and you know, like I said, those the the. The opening of Farewell to Kings, when I put it on this time, it just, oh, I was just so happy. I was just, it's like I'd come home. Yeah. There, there are sections of Farewell to Kings where it's almost like a, a more fluid version of 2112. Uh, you know, uh, I don't say, I'm, I'm certainly not saying it's better or, or, or worse for that matter, but it's it actually is more fluid and you can sit through it easier um, yeah i mean it, and, and and so if you if you think of you know if we're going to carry on the discussion then about rush continuing to to learn their craft i think you know like i said for me this is where they finally started to put it all together sickness aside um you know because they they still have the the aspects that sort of you know, you can see where they came from and, and, and 
you have those aspects that sort of set them apart in the beginning, but you can also clearly see where they're they're headed um, after this. Um, so, yeah, to me, I just I I think this is this is you know right on right on the the verge, if you will, if if not into that that sweet spot. Yeah, and I don't I don't know that we've mentioned it up to this point, and it would make sense that we wouldn't because of our entree into all of this stuff. But this was really the first album where where keyboards became a prominent featured instrument, and mm. you know, particularly in in Xanadu, yeah. with the uh, you know the little the little melody, um, and it and it's apparent throughout. Like I think that's one of the things that makes Magicals pretty cool. Is that it has this you know, pretty significant keyboard part in it, and Madrigal I love because it reminds me of a Michael Hedges song, something off of Taproot, the verses, and then the bridge chorus type of thing is more like I think it's if there was ever a time that Rush ever sounded like Genesis, it's in Madrigal, and. Um, and it's just the briefest of moments, and and it, it's cool. I've all I've always liked Cinderella Man. I think it's a great. It, it is. It, it's really what's happening in this album is, is they're taking all of these, these metal influences. I don't think, although Cygnus X One parts definitely have metal in it, and there's Xanadu is pulls from a a, a metal type background. Like the most of the album is is shedding some of the the metal feel, while you can still kind of get the influence being in there. The the guitar riff it's it's not metal anymore. It's not blues based rock and roll like the early album. They're really coming into their own style, and I think Cinderella Man is a terrific terrific version of it. And uh, the wikis at least are. Um, are crediting uh, Getty Lee with writing the lyrics um, to that one. Um, I don't remember. I don't. I don't remember whether I. I know I heard it probably first on on Exit Stage Left, and then got comfortable with it on the recorded version. But the segue from the trees into Xanadu on Exit Stage Left, just like everyone else is saying, is is really one of the most magical moments in live albums ever. Like I don't. I generally don't like live albums. That shit is cool. Yep. <laughs> yep. Well, closer to the heart, as we skip over it, is startling in that uh, it featured a, a non-band member as a, a co-writer. So a guy named Peter Talbot, friends with uh, Neil, contributed to, to Closer to the Heart. And it remained in their live sets for years and years and years, and by 2002, according to Neil, they got sick of it. So, <laughs> but if you think about our exposure to FM radio, I mean, we had Spirit of the Radio, Closer to the Heart. Um, some of these early Rush tunes were inescapable in our youth. I mean, for good reason. They were just. I mean, they they were they were miles above some of the other classic rock tunes, really. I mean, close to the heart. I mean, closer to the heart. The the 
production on there and the clarity of Getty's voice, like it, it's hard to classify what that is. It's 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 not an acoustic ballad. Yeah, it's not a it's not a, it's not a rock song as we would. You know, it, it was kind of amazing for 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 just fitting into the the radio format. Yeah. I, f- I feel like that's kind of the the um, the culmination of, of of what we're talking about. It's you know like closer to the heart is not even three minutes long, and it has it has twelve string acoustic guitar. It has a a like a a, a sing along chorus, if you will, right? It's got a regular rock and roll progression. It's got a somewhat elaborate solo section that even contains a, a, a rhythmic break between the, the drums and bass, you know, with dual, like dual guitars, like harmony guitars. It's like all the little ingredients on the progressive rock, you know, spice rack <laughs> are used just a little bit. And it, it, it gives you this song that you, you can't even describe it, you know, whether it's a ballad or whatever, like you said, Ken, and and it, it really sums up where Rush has come. And imagine, you know, the the the, the record labels like, you know, they, they put out twenty one twelve and then it turns out to be a success and then they follow up with with this record. And not only does it have Xanadu, which is is in in a way the same thing. It's it's utilizing all of the spices on the progressive spice rack. And but it's an epic song that doesn't need a whole album side, right? It, they're they're putting it, they're making it into this suite that is, it's it's masterful. Like it is, it like I would like agree with you, Joe. Like this is like the and you and I. Like they don't need a whole album side to get across what they want to and blow you away. They're they're going to do it in a in a in a song and in an arrangement that makes 11 minutes go by like five. Yeah. The, the other, the other spice that gets thrown in on this album that, um, I, I must be tired that I didn't bring it up before. I am a sucker for chimes. Oh yes. please. (laughs) And it was, you know, it's one of those things where I guess, I guess somewhere in between, uh, 2112 and this, you know, Neil got his hands on some and, he just wants to bring out his new toy because it, it's kind of peppered all throughout here, isn't it? As I, I recall. Yeah, they even put it in closer to the heart. Like, what hit song yeah. had orchestra chimes in it? Yep, I can't. I can't think of many. Is that where the vibra slap is too? Vibra slap. Oh. There is. That's right. Yeah. That is yeah. I'd make the sound for you. It's the crazy train. It's a right, the, the, right? Yeah, yeah. That's right. That is right. That's that's awesome, Jay. Your point though, it's not as nice as Chimes, Joe. Definitely. Yeah. Well, you know, but but how many how many hit songs on the radio has orchestra chimes and a virus slap going on? <laughs> Does this mean that Neil never toured without the chimes from oh, this yeah. point on? Pretty that's much. Nice. Well, I remember seeing it in uh, Moving Pictures live uh, stuff. Yeah, so he would add the chimes in. After yeah, that. Oh, but. 
I think they just got a bigger tour bus on this one, so they were able to start taking her around. If you uh, Bill Bill Bruford, he just would have like sampled them and and tied them yeah. into a, a drum head somewhere else. But <laughs> yeah, later on during Power Windows or and beyond, he did that later. Yeah, yeah. Oh, he may have sampled them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. I didn't see him until uh, Hold Your Fire, so I don't remember what he had there. It, wouldn't be surprised if they were sampled. All right. So, anything else on a farewell to Kings, gentlemen? I, I, something interesting about farewell to Kings, and I'm curious on your opinion. And and I don't think I ever would have even suggested this without going through the albums the way we have chronologically. When I first, the first time I put on Farewell to Kings, this go around, the first thing that I thought of was like, you know what? You could take out 2112 and Caress of Steel and you could go right from Fly by Night to a Farewell to Kings and you wouldn't miss a beat. Any thoughts on that? Wow. So I... I, I certainly wouldn't disagree with you on that. Um, so you know, are you saying that you don't want to hear 2112? I don't... No, it's not. It's not that I don't want to hear it, but I almost feel like I, I. I feel like sonically and like the way the songs are presented, that that you could you could you you can have the progression of Fly by Night to A Farewell to Kings without the other two in between. That's all. I I, I feel like it's it's just a smoother transition, maybe even smoother. Than you know, being sidetracked with the Fountain of Lemneth and and um, twenty one twelve. Well, I you know you know me. I still love the Fountain of Lemneth, but you know there there's certainly there. I think there are drawbacks to to each of those two albums in between. There, um, you know, Caress of Steel. Jay, I think you pointed out that the Necromancer is curious at best um the overall sonic quality of of that record is, you know is certainly lacking um we we just beat 2112 to death or at least i did you guys seem to be better with it but i mean you know and again i i have to go back to well i mean keep everything in perspective of what we have talked about on this podcast so far so if you think about, um, you know, Marillion had had the, the the salvage period where you had, you know, radiation and and dot com, um, and what was Anorak on there? I don't even remember what the uh, what the salvage was. But you know, you had these albums that were almost like a step back in terms of of the production quality. Um, you know, yes, you certainly had you know half of Tales from Topographic Oceans. Um, Relayer, while brilliant, I think is produced in a very curious manner um, that that you know is sort of incongruous with with the with the flow. So yeah, I mean, you know, I, I don't know if there was maybe maybe it had maybe it was somehow tied into all the uh, the marijuana use there in the the mid to late seventies that no one you know was everyone thought everything sounded much better than it really did. I don't know. Um, <laughs> You know, maybe maybe they were maybe they were using you know tainted East European iron in the in the uh, in the tapes 
and it, it didn't hold up. I don't know what, what the deal was, but, but clearly something was going on. And, and yeah, Paul, you know, if, if you wave a magic wand and, and go from fly by night into a farewell to Kings, you know, it might be a little shocking at, at the, at the, the growth, if you will. But I, you know, yeah, I, I could totally see that. Yeah, with this Bastille deck, that's about it. Mm. I love that Jay likes Bastille Day. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, so yeah, I mean, that's, you know, I, I think, I, you know, I, I, for me, this first part of the, of the Rush catalog um, has been eye-opening. You know, there, there are things here that I like that I ne- never really thought about before. Um, you know, and, and I honestly, there was, there was much more about 2112, the album, than I remembered. So that was, for me, that was a very, very pleasant um, experience. And, um, you know, I certainly liked A Farewell to Kings. And, you know, now now's the exciting part, because from here on out, we have you know this this progression from um, from hemispheres, which hemispheres kind of, in my perception, hemispheres closes out sort of the early quote unquote early rush period, but yeah. from hemispheres through you know presto and and you know maybe even through counterparts, just one one monster album after another, really. So, I'm really excited to uh, to get into that and uh, and to sort of you know follow this out. Very cool. Yeah, we're gonna have trouble disagreeing on on some stuff. Well, maybe not. We always find uh, we always find differences in what we like. Well, I, I know I, I already foresee a couple of potholes in the road in 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 all of this, but you know I wouldn't be surprised if if the next episode or two. We actually cover more albums than we normally do because I think everyone's gonna be like, "Well, yeah, that's fucking awesome," and we're done. <laughs> <laughs> we we might run into some problems on uh, roll roll the bones. Well, I think you know, I, I yeah, I, I think I think um, roll the bones, and what I I don't even have my my notes here. I don't know what comes after. Roll the bones, or I'm um, Presto. I'm sorry. Yeah, it was Presto, then Roll the Bones. Um, it was yeah, counterparts. counterparts. Okay, so so counterparts is is brilliant. Roll the bones, yeah. Um, what I'm curious about is I, and again, I haven't listened to it in a long time. The last time I listened to it, I had a different perspective, but my overwhelming memory. Hold Your Fire is not great. And I know Paul loves Hold Your Fire, so just relax. Just relax. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just saying how I remember it, you know, from years and years ago. I'm very curious in in light of, uh, you know, of palaver preparation, how I'm going to, to interact with that album today. So, yeah. Ironically, I taped, I taped my copy of Hold Your Fire off of you, Joe. Really, yeah, I did. So I, I went through. I went through. I still have my my LP collection, 
Yeah. And I went I went through and I pulled out things of interest, mainly so that I could take pictures for, for Twitter. Hold Your Fire was one of those things <laughs> that I found. Um, I have Hold Your Fire. I have um, Grace Under Pressure. I found, Ken, I've got a copy of Genesis Trespass. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Very, very cool. Um, I have Asia's Alpha, which is nice. So I've got the full gatefold. Um, wow. Of, of that cover which is is very very cool so yeah I've, i found some uh i found some cool things um that i wasn't i, I can't say i even remember so i guess now i gotta go find myself a turntable and experience these things old school yeah i wonder joe um it's possible that you just didn't like rockfield studios in wales and trident studios in london um they, they they use that rock field for two or three albums, so uh, uh, I guess the, 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 the more poppy, radio-friendly song that we know in Hemispheres and Moving Pictures was actually done in uh, Quebec. But when, when during this period where we're not quite so sure about you know their sound or their production quality, they recorded uh, across the pond. Well, I, I like Farewell to Kings, which was um, recorded at um, at Rockfield. 2112 was actually recorded in Toronto. Mm, mm, mm. Okay. okay. Perhaps they would have fared better had they employed um, some of the uh, Swiss telecommunications technology of the day. Yeah. To, uh, to record. Yeah, recording over the phone was hot. I would like to, you know, it's it's funny you bring that up, and this has nothing to do with this episode, but I was just, you know, we, ha we had such a long conversation about recording the organ over the telephone lines and everything else, and when I was editing one of the King's X albums, I think it was, or episodes, I think it was the second one, where we talk about Faith, Hope, Love, Paul, you pull out um, you know, you, you play something, I don't even remember which song it was. And, and let me just tell you, it was it was not a, a high-fidelity transfer of <laughs> of the sound over, uh, over Skype, but be that as it may. That's funny. Gentlemen, I think we've covered um, these two albums pretty well. Next episode, we will get into, I guess, um, Hemispheres and... Permanent Waves, is that correct? Yes. Can't awesome. wait. And and maybe we should be prepared with moving pictures just in case, or just moving pictures need its own. I don't imagine that we're going to get through all three of them next time. All way right. And moving pictures is going to be its own episode. Come on. We could do an episode <laughs> on every song. <laughs> well, I think Exit Stage Left should come first, and then moving pictures just ancillary crap. To, to, to just stay left. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have those discussions. Gentlemen, thank you so nice. much as always. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Cheers. Bye. Bye, guys. You right, see you guys next time. Ciao.
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Progressive Palaver. We hope you've enjoyed the conversation. And for those of you who want to express your displeasure with me over my reception of 2112, I encourage you to seek us out on all of the major social media platforms, including Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We are at Progpala at all of those, or you can search for Progressive Palaver. Feel free to also email us at progpala, that's P-R-O-G-P-A-L-A, at gmail.com. And we do have a YouTube channel if you want to check out some of the things we have there. We look forward to uh, coming back with you next episode as we continue on with the Rush Catalog and cover the album Hemispheres.